Good morning and uh, welcome to church again. Please take your Bible, find Romans, no, Mark chapter 7. Today we'll be in Mark, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. Every Sunday I come to the pulpit with a high level of excitement because I'm convinced and remain convinced that the ongoing weekly exposition of the Word is one of God's primary means to sanctify you. On this particular Lord's Day, I'm immediately, admittedly, a tad bit more excited because of the occasion. Today, Christians all over the globe are observing Reformation Sunday. The Sunday before the actual Reformation Day, October 31st. And so just as we may deliver a special message to mothers on Mother's Day or a message on thankfulness before Thanksgiving, today we will exposit a text of Scripture dealing with one key aspect of the greatest transformation of Western society since the apostles first preached the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, the Protestant Reformation which was a movement we are all descendants of, my credo-baptist friends. If you walked in here today expecting to participate in worship via singing God-centered hymns and hearing a word-centered sermon in your own language, then make no mistake. It's all because of a few men God rose up in 16th century Europe. October 31st, 1517, is commonly known as the official birth of the Reformation, which was induced by a rather zealous, troubled monk. On that, on that day, 499 years ago, this agitated monk, who became a theology professor, marched over to the university church in Wittenberg, Germany, with a document and a mallet in his hand. You know the story from there. He proceeded to attach the document, which was simply a list of grievances against the Roman Catholic Church for its spiritual abuses, to the wooden door, which served as a public bulletin board. Unintentionally, that single act provoked a debate that culminated in a division between those who remained loyal to the Pope and his magisterium. If you don't know what that is, I'll explain that later. And those who relied solely on what the Word of God reveals. And those who took the latter conviction expressed that conviction in the form of a Latin phrase called sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And by professing sola scriptura, we boldly assert that no tradition of man, no matter what mode or ceremony or style or sacrament or no matter who started it and how long it's been practiced, will ever be held at or above the level of the 66 books of the Bible. That's the key aspect of the Reformation we're going to hone in on today. Out of the five solas, which 
are the five Latin phrases that summarize the basic theological principles of the Reformation. I chose to dedicate this Reformation Sunday to Sola Scriptura for two main reasons. First, because that's where we always start. We start with what God's Word says and with what God's Word means. If you start with the presupposition that the Bible alone is my ultimate authority, then you're forcefully led to affirming dogmatically that a sinner is saved by sola gratia, grace alone, through sola fide, faith alone, in solus Christus, in Christ alone, for soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. And now, since I've been your pastor, I've done my best to help you answer any and all questions, not with, this is what I was taught. Not with, my Baptist confession of faith says. Not with, my denomination says. Not with, the church fathers wrote this. And especially, not God told me. Don't ever say that. You must train and retrain your mind over and over again to respond with, the Bible says this. For example, in response to the question, how is a man justified? Your immediate response should be something like Galatians 2.16 or Romans 5. Galatians 2.16 says, a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Memorize that simple reference, and you have an authority to appeal to for your belief about justification. So we start with the scripture. I need to remind you that we need to start with what the Bible says and what it means. Secondly, the second reason why I decided to preach on sola scriptura this morning is because much of the Protestant community has reverted back to elevating man-made tradition above the Bible or equal to the Bible in the form of creeds and confessions, denominational loyalties, or they may have embraced an additional source of spiritual authority, namely in the mainstream form of the prostitution of the charismata. Or the ubiquitous, wrongful use of the sign gifts, which we see demonstrated in the film industry, TBN, and popular Christian books, and on positive, encouraging Caleb. One notable theologian uh, published the same thought by writing, It appears that American evangelicalism has, by and large, traded in sola scriptura for sorta scriptura. And that was leveled at us. Judgment starts at the house of God. So we need to reestablish and reaffirm our commitment to the word of God this morning. Properly interpreted as our sole, final, and authority, ultimate authority over our thinking and practice. Now, how are we going to build the airtight case that sola scriptura ought to be our conviction. 
In other words, what right do I have to stand up here and boldly proclaim to you that you must develop a strong passion for the old Reformation doctrine of Sola Scriptura? Why should I say that you must work hard to learn all the Bible says and allow it to frame your thinking about who God is and what you should do with your life? What right do I have to say that? None. But the Lord Jesus Christ does. The doctrine of Sola Scriptura is discovered in the Bible. As a herald of the king, I have nothing else to say than what my king would have me say. So I'm coming here to this pulpit to read to you and explain to you the truth found in Mark 7. Mark 7 is an explicit text where we find the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. It's in this passage of Scripture we are informed that that doctrine by far precedes Luther and the European Reformers. Jesus himself, being God in human form, boldly and authoritatively condemned the religious leaders for pushing aside and ignoring God's word in order to practice man-made tradition. Now, listen very carefully. I need to make one clarification lest I be misunderstood. Tradition itself is not the issue, per se. Tradition in and of itself is not the problem. There are places in Scripture where the inspired writers speak favorably of tradition. Take, for instance, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Paul said, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught. So as we walk through the first 13 verses of Mark 7, you may be tempted to wonder, is Paul and Jesus at odds? Some might say so, but of course they are not. Where there's an apparent contradiction in the Bible, you must always understand that it is our understanding that is an error, not the text. So let me just flat out say, Paul does not disagree with Jesus. Paul, in 2 Thessalonians and in other places where tradition is mentioned favorably, he urges his audience to stick to apostolic doctrine that does not contradict what has already been revealed by the prophets. So, please don't walk away from this message thinking that I'm trying to get you to abandon all forms of ecclesiastical tradition. We mustn't, quote-unquote, throw the baby out with the bathwater. The dispute Jesus had with tradition was the wrongful and detrimental elevation of man-made tradition over the Word of God. That's wrong. That's the issue. That's the sin because it puts out the light of the true saving gospel. Now, let's read Mark 7, 1 to 13, and then we're going to dial in on verses 5 to 13 this morning. Mark 7, verse 1. The word of our God reads, 
The Pharisees and some of the scribes gathered around him when they had come from Jerusalem and had seen that some of his disciples were eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands, thus observing the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves, and there are many other things which they have, have received in order to observe, such as washing the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites that is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is Corban. That is to say, given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother. Thus, invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down, and you do many things such as that. Wherever the truth of God establishes a stronghold in a religious culture, there will inevitably be collision. The conflict between truth and tradition is always a violent collision. In other words, there is always a clash between man's rules and God's laws. There's always a disruptive explosion when God's authority and man's additions are mixed together. Like oil and water... The erroneous, fickle opinions and the lofty, verbose philosophies of men are forever separable from God's pure and holy revelation. There's also a lifelong, soul-crushing burden one carries when a religious leader places upon their blind followers the unbearable burden of unrelenting submission to human rule. And just in case you were wondering, that's what the Protestant Reformation was all about. Our spiritual forefathers made it their mission to set the captives free from the radical tyranny of Roman Catholic domination. Which was undeniably 1,000 years of empty external tradition by unleashing the word of God and bringing it to bear on the minds of the people. So we're calling this day Reformation Sunday, but it's appropriate to remember that history. It's right to remember it for many reasons, but number one reason why we should remember it today 
and dedicate a worship service to it is so that you don't take for granted having a Bible in your own language. The Reformers were not perfect. They were sinners. They erred. They said things they shouldn't have said, and they did things they shouldn't have done. But can I be brutally honest for a second? So have you. You've all done things you shouldn't have done. You've all said things you shouldn't have said. There have been times you've embarrassed the name of Christ. And so have I. And I point this out to show how ignorant and hypocritical it is to fail to appreciate and esteem men like Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox. Because if it weren't for them, from a human perspective, they'd, we would all still be in spiritual darkness. Which would be evidenced by you appearing before an altar and receiving the Eucharist as a means of your justification. So in addition to appreciating these reformers because of the work that you personally benefit from every time you open your Bible and sing a song in English, we all must recognize that we have one core thing in common with them. Not just our embarrassing shortcomings. We have in common with them the belief that Scripture alone is the highest and supreme authority, even supreme over religious rulers. That was the issue that Jesus brings to the table in Mark 7, where we find a confrontation between Jesus and religious leaders. Now notice in verse 5 that the Pharisees who were the religious conservatives of the day. Pharisee just means separated one. They were separated from everyone, including their own people. Notice that they did not seek Jesus out and ask, why are you breaking God's commands? In verse 5, they ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders was the countless rules and endless regulations that were added to the Bible that required obedience in order to be saved and in order to be sanctified. These extra-biblical rules and regulations were called the tradition of the elders. And they were elevated to a place of equality to Scripture and above the Scripture. They were the words of the rabbis, which became weightier than the words of the prophets. And eventually they smothered out the authority and primacy of the word. Does what I just said sound familiar? If you know anything at all about church history, does that sound familiar? Do you know what became an offshoot or a New Testament version of the tradition of the elders in the medieval church? Who knows? Raise your hand if you know. Two people. 
This is why we're doing this. Listen, it is the Roman Catholic Magisterium. Consisting of the Pope and his bishops. The purpose of the magisterium is to interpret and teach the truths of religion. Whatever doctrines that are disseminated from the magisterium is binding on every person claiming to be Catholic. And according to Roman Catholic teaching, this quote-unquote sacred tradition is necessary, listen, because without it, humanity cannot understand God's revelation. Friends, that outrageous tradition still exists today. It's not often spoken of in those terms. You won't hear many priests or parishioners go around saying with pride, I have to believe what the magisterium tells me to believe. But speaking from official doctrine and speaking from personal experience as a former Catholic, churchgoers are not encouraged to do personal Bible study in the way that you were trained to. Non-clergy are not equipped, furthermore, to teach or preach. Why? Because that would involve the laity. You... Average folk with no formal training to interpret truth. Not even the priests can go around or against the magisterium unless he wants to be reprimanded or fired. So the magisterium, that governing body which every Roman Catholic is subject to, is simply the tradition of the elders reinvented. So when Jesus came preaching and acting in a way that did not conform to the tradition of the elders, it created a perfect storm. Jesus was confronting truth versus tradition. Divine revelation versus human rules and true religion versus false spirituality. So now that we set the stage, for the brief time I have left this morning, I want to work our way through the rest of this passage. In the following verses, we meet a Jesus that's not popular. In verses 6 and following, we see a side of Jesus that makes many Christians uncomfortable. We see a Jesus that religious people hate. But beginning in verse 6, who do we see? We see the real Jesus. We see the authentic Jesus. We see that he pulls no punches. Jesus, who at times is awesomely compassionate. To the point where we read the text and we're moved to tears. But he wasn't like that all the time. In this text, he does not gently or patiently dignify this arrogant, stupid question with an answer. He goes on the offense. He indicts them. 
He calls them out publicly. These three indictments have to do with denying the proper authority that Scripture has over God's people. And so these indictments, uh, they should stand in judgment against all who have elevated man-made rules and practice above God's word, first and foremost. The claim that something is as or more important than the Bible is the absolute worst thing you could do. Because if you set aside the Bible, you, for, you forfeit all truth. Also, allow this text, allow these indictments to settle any question in your mind about the veracity of Sola Scriptura. Whenever you're asked, especially from a Roman Catholic, where do you Protestants find Sola Scriptura in the Bible? You say, my pastor said so, right? No. Mark 7. Mark 7 should come out of your mind immediately, come out of your mouth immediately. Lastly, allow these indictments to be a warning to you. To you who've grown up in church, to you who've been in church for a long time, who may be tempted to hold a little too tightly to your baptistic or, quote-unquote, non-denominational traditions. And we have them, don't we? We have our traditions, and Protestant churchgoers can sin just like any other false religion by clinging too tight to man-made tradition and rules. Now let's look at this first indictment against those who elevate tradition over God's word. The first indictment that Jesus gives them is the indictment of hypocrisy. In verses 6 and 7. Those who love tradition more than God's word are phony and superficial. Look what Jesus says in verse 6. He says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you hypocrites. The Greek word translated hypocrisy came to mean uh, to represent or impersonate someone. As an actor would. And it applied to one who would act a part or pretend to be what they are not. By saying that they were God's servants while displaying a much higher concern for tradition than God's law, the scribes and Pharisees were indeed pretenders. And Jesus bluntly calls them out on it. And then to expand on how they have proven themselves to be fakers, Jesus appeals to God's word. He quotes Isaiah 29:13. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. Now this scriptural, scriptural citation points us back to a time in Israel's history when the Israelites were just like the Pharisees. Long before the rabbinic traditions enslaved the hearts of first century Israel, external and mechanical ritualism already had. And by throwing this verse in the Pharisees' face, Jesus would have stoked the fire even more. Not only did Jesus straight up call them fakers, calling them hypocrites, 
he was saying they were fakers because their worship of God was false. It was superficial. It was contrived, and it was downright unacceptable. And so, my friends, listen to this. Today, that would be like Jesus, if you were here today, marching into the Vatican City and calling the Pope and his magisterium hypocrites. And just as mainstream Christianity would find that to be unthinkable, so did apostate Judaism. The religious leaders of the day, of Jesus' day, were legitimately charged with hypocrisy because they failed to believe and practice sola scriptura. And if you don't believe and practice sola scriptura, then you will be just like the Pharisees, hypocrites. The second indictment against those who elevate human tradition over God's word is the indictment of negligence. Look at verse 8. Those who love tradition more than God's word willfully ignore the plain meaning of Scripture so that they can enforce their man-made rules. Jesus says, neglecting the command of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Now look, that, that word neglect, it means to dismiss. It means to send away. And the idea here is there being an active role one plays when he or she neglects something, okay? So don't think neglect like you just ignore and forget about it. You know, like, you go, if you go to my house right now, you'll notice the yard isn't, hasn't been cut in a while. And you might think, man, Heighton is neglecting his yard. Well, yeah, I've been ignoring it because I don't feel like cutting it when it's wet. But you see, that there's a difference in saying, I'm just going to totally shove it aside and never get around to it. See the difference? I remember one warm day when I was a boy, about six or seven years old, working in the garage with my dad. And I can't recall exactly what we were doing, but I just remember standing there, just kind of clueless, waiting for something to do. Waiting for him to say, go get a wrench, go get a screwdriver, whatever. And I was standing there, just looking around. Out of nowhere, this stray dog comes bolting into the garage at full speed. And I got scared. I didn't like dogs that much when I was a kid. And so my dad, being the six foot three, 350 pound man, gets up and like a lion, he shouts, Get out of here! And that's all it took for that poor mutt to vamoose. You see, he sternly dismissed it. He neglected it. And that's exactly and precisely what the Jews had done with the Word of God. They said, get out of here. We have our traditions. We don't need the prophets. Why would they do such a thing? Because... They wanted to observe their traditions instead. 
So make no mistake, when there is competition with the Word of God, like there is in all forms of pseudo-Christianity, what you find in practice is that the Word of God is dismissed. It's not just like, oh, yeah, it's there and we'll get around to it. We still use it and appreciate it. It's no. It's willfully discarded. And so let me remind you that Scripture does not have a partner. There is no other inspired text. There is no authorized apocrypha or deuterocanonical book. And there's certainly no sacred tradition. There are only the 66 books of the Bible available to inform us of what we must believe, what we must do. And so, implication, wherever the Bible is silent or nonspecific, this word applies to us. We must be flexible. And we must be willing to let go of our church traditions if necessary. What if the elders of this church just decided, hey, we're no longer going to have nursery? What if we decided we're not going to have midweek anything anymore because we're going to focus on this? Some people would be livid. And if that would cause you to rebel, to leave, to do anything else, that means that that tradition in our Baptistic circle is more important to you than the Word of God. So let this indictment be an indictment to us who love our traditions. The third indictment against those who elevate human tradition above God's Word is the indictment of idolatry. Verses 9 to 13. Those who love tradition more than God's word are extremely committed to substituting God's inspired word for uninspired, wearisome rituals. In verse 9, Jesus says, You are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. These Pharisees, they were very skilled, they were very talented. Very trained men. But guess what? Usually false teachers who amass a large following are. They were apt to allow men to dictate their thought and practice. They became advanced in placing the tradition of the elders above the word of God. And so they acted more concerned about non-prescriptive tradition, not a clear command from Yahweh. Or, just put another way, the law of Moses as revealed in the Old Testament. Now, as we read the first five verses of this text, maybe you asked yourself, why would the Pharisees be so concerned about the disciples ceremonially cleansing their hands before they eat some bread? Why? Where did they get that? Where does the Bible say that? It doesn't. It never says it anywhere in the Bible at all. That was purely an oral rabbinic tradition. So, when Jesus appeared on the scene and rejected and refused to follow rabbinic tradition, 
The Pharisees had a conniption. They were so concerned about the details that it choked out every ounce of biblical literacy among them. They got so obsessed with the oral tradition that their obsession with applying the law morphed into a universally binding responsibility to all faithful Hebrews, which became the sole and final authority. And there are countless examples of this happening today, both in Protestantism and Catholicism. But for the sake of time, we don't need to visit those because Jesus gives us one here. We see a specific example of how these Pharisees and scribes have nullified God's word and replaced it with man's word. Look at verses 10 to 12. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and he who speaks evil of father or mother is to be put to death. But you say, If a man says to his father or his mother, Whatever I have that would help you is Corban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer permit them to do anything for his father or his mother. And so here Jesus reveals the cold effect of one of their superficial traditions, which deceivingly allowed men to circumvent the clear teaching of Scripture. One of their traditions approved of grown children refusing to financially help his aging parents on the grounds that all assets were allocated to God. That word Corban, it is a Hebrew word for devoted to God. And it referred to money and materials that had been pledged to God. This tradition provided a loophole for selfish, materialistic, worldly, uncompassionate people to keep all their money for themselves while they can appear spiritual. This, in turn, would give sons an excuse to not financially help their parents in need. So this rabbinic tradition, it grew to completely undermine the Word of God. And Jesus proves it again by quoting Scripture. You see that pattern? Jesus did not argue with philosophy. Jesus did not argue with psychobabble. Jesus always brought the Old Testament as proving grounds for what he was saying. Let that be an example to us. Jesus said, Moses wrote, honor your parents. But that tradition, the tradition of the Pharisees, urged people to turn their back on parents. The polar opposite of what God would have them do. And by doing this, they were habitually, verse 13, invalidating the word of God by their tradition. Interestingly enough, the word invalidate, is derived from the Greek word kurios, which means lord or master. 
So Jesus was telling them that they attributed God's word with no value, no worth. And by their traditions, they were showing that the scripture had no lordship over them. They have annulled the the centrality of Scripture, and they purpose to submit to something else instead. Now, can you see the problems that arise when a tradition is given equal or greater authority than Scripture? When we cancel out the clear meaning of God's commands with a tradition backed by religious leaders, making it sound super spiritual and sacred, you see where it leads? Are you tracking with me? You see where these traditions that are elevated above God's word, where does it lead? It leads to apostasy. It leads to a great falling away. And that's exactly what happened in church history. The Roman Catholic Church boastfully confesses to this day That church tradition is on the same authoritative level as the very word of God. Don't take my word for it. Listen. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says, paragraph 82, quote, Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments and devotion and reverence. Paragraph 97, sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God. Can it get any more clear than that? How does that make you feel? Who didn't know that before? How many of you just heard that today for the first time? Brothers and sisters, I love you, but you have no excuse for that. Learn this stuff so you can be discerning and so you can evangelize these people. They don't believe the true gospel. Stop believing the evangelical lie that Catholics are Christians too. They're not. They need the gospel. They're enslaved to exactly what Jesus condemns in Mark 7. Sola Scriptura, it's plainly demonstrated in the New Testament. Mark 7. Jesus boldly stated that it alone is to be your final and supreme authority. And like the scribes and Pharisees, if you allow your favorite extra-biblical traditions to serve as your ultimate authority, you will be guilty of hypocrisy, negligence, and idolatry. So I submit to you this morning, on this Reformation Sunday, take these indictments of Jesus and commit them to memory so that you will be protected from man-made tradition. Whether it's here, at another church, or another institution, Secondly, 
commit these indictments to memory so that you will be able to make a defense for why you reject the Pope and his magisterium. In a day when the church is reverting back to the spiritual dark ages prior to the Great Reformation. Now I'll close with a quote because my time is gone. This is a quote from a man much smarter than me from Ligonier Ministries. On the importance of Reformation Day, he says, Martin Luther's rediscovery of Sola Scriptura led to a whole host of other church and societal reforms. And much of what we take for granted in the West would have likely been impossible had he never graced the scene. Luther's translation of the Bible into German put the word of God in the hands of the people. And today's scripture is available in the vernacular language of many countries, enabling lay people, such as yourself, non-professional ministers, to study with profit. He goes on to say, he reformed Latin mass by putting the liturgy in the common tongue so that non-scholars could hear and understand the word preached and worship the Lord with clarity. Luther lifted the unbiblical ban on marriage for clergy and by his own teaching and example radically transformed the institution itself. He recaptured the biblical view of the priesthood of all believers. Showing all people that their work had purpose and dignity because in it they can serve their creator. So please walk out of here with greater clarity and greater passion for Sola Scriptura. Not because I said so, but because the Lord Jesus condemns those who elevate tradition above his word. Amen? Father, thank you so much that your word is clear. Thank you that we don't have to be in the dark. Thank you that we have to be confused. Thank you we don't have to be enslaved to the ever-changing thoughts and philosophies and theologies of men. May we test everything against the Scripture. As the Bereans did when they heard Paul preach. May we do the hard work to study it and understand it in its context and apply it appropriately. May we have a burden and a zeal to reach Roman Catholics with the Gospel. May we not fear the lie of this culture that wants to blur the line between truth and error. May we go out with the conviction of knowing that your elect will be saved no matter how we communicate the message, Father. What a joy knowing that the salvation of a sinner is not in our hands but in yours. But we know, Father, at the same time, you have 
also predetermine the means to the end. And that means is for us to open our mouth, preach the truth, and evangelize those who are in darkness. We thank you for those whom you've raised up. We thank you for those whom have sacrificed so much so that we can have your word at our fingertips anytime we want. Thank you for those men, Lord. And may you raise up more Luthers. May you raise up more Calvins. May you raise up more men and women who will stand up and say the word of God says. In Jesus' mighty name.